Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Kara. Will, big, big show lined up today. Awesome conversation with the one and only Chris Fowler. Um, he's someone who we've wanted to have on the show for a long time. So it was huge to be able to make that happen. We're also going to talk about most disappointing seasons in figuring it out, which... I'm gonna guess you, a Saints fan, an LSU fan. Man, <laughs> right off the bat today, Connor. I did not wake up choosing violence, but I'm just gonna guess you're gonna have some contributions to that. Hey, look, same. I mean, come on, look at my teams. I'm wearing a bear sweatshirt right now for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, we're, we'll get there though. Um, but first, before we do that, the X Factor of the SEC East, wait for it, Anthony Richardson. Okay. the title. Yeah, if you read the title, you saw that, so you weren't exactly sitting there on the edge of your seat. I've got a lot of thoughts about the power dynamics in the SEC East this year. I, I think if you're looking at the number two spot in the division and saying it's an open and shut deal, you're probably looking at it wrong. Yes, Georgia, the defending national champs, is going to start off number one. If you're not voting for them at number one, you're just doing so to be a contrarian. Marlon and I talked about this on the Cast Interference. Go subscribe on Saturday Down South YouTube channel. But I think after Georgia, that number two spot is totally up for grabs. It feels like four teams are in the mix and we'll, we'll do all of our you know predictions and all that stuff later so we'll have plenty of time to be able to get to this but it kind of speaks to the fluidity of the situation now the four teams that i think are in the running for that number two spot in the sec east kentucky tennessee florida south carolina they will all get votes at sec media days somewhere a mizzou fan maybe adam spencer <laughs> just got definitely really really mad definitely adam spencer just got really mad listening to that I would say calm down, and nobody ever likes to be told calm down or relax. Have you ever noticed that? Mm -hmm. That always just makes the situation way worse. It's like, what's the worst possible thing you can say in this instance? It's calm down, it's relax. Never gonna fly, but um, relax. <laughs> Remember, Mizzou has not had a winning season in SEC play since 2014. Wow. Tyler Beatty, by the way, Tyler Beatty gone, pretty big part of their team. I have no idea what to expect at quarterback. Not exactly sold on the post first drive of the Armed Forces Bowl version of Brady Cook. So TBD on that. And Steve Wilkes. Steve Wilkes, yeah, same guy, defense coordinator, Mizzou, guy who had like the worst run defense in America for a long time. Um, he somehow failed up and got an NFL defensive coordinator job, so good he for sure him. sure did. You know Mizzou fans were just pumped about that. They, oh no, don't hire Steve Wilkes, oh! I have uh, my, my, um, my Charlotte radio guys that I follow were way more excited about it than Mizzou fans, I'll tell you. Well, actually, you know what, I take that back. They treated the hire way different than the Mizzou fans. <laughs> in my life. I'll just say that. He's an NFL defensive coordinator, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that he's a bad coach, it's just it doesn't really work in college. Yeah, it just didn't exactly work this year. But that's my way of saying a lot of questions about Mizzou. They're not going to be part of this, this conversation for number two spot in the division. My two through five in the East, in no particular order, Florida, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, once again. Maybe a transfer here, a key injury there, perhaps even a coaching staff move, looking at you, Liam Cohen. Maybe that could make or break who finishes second in the East. That's why... I think Richardson could shake all of that up. To be clear, I will not have Florida as my number two team in the SEC East at media days unless several things happen. 
as tempting as it is to fall in love with the inevitable Anthony Richardson backflip videos, of which there are many, and we'll probably see a whole lot more on social media over the course of the offseason, I will resist the urge to assume greatness because of those things. What I do think is fascinating, just with the way that the division breaks down, is wondering what that would look like if you just said, hey, what if I told you that Anthony Richardson is gonna live up to that potential with Billy Napier? Probably wouldn't make a 30 for 30 about it, but you would probably say, oh, wait a minute, each of the last two Florida coaches flamed out, but both of them had quarterbacks who surprised in year one in their respective seasons. Felipe Franks was the best version of himself in 2018 for a Florida team that won a New Year's Six Bowl after it won four games in 2017. And pre-suspension Will Greer was a revelation in oh, Gainesville. Oh man, pre-suspension Will Greer. That is oh. one of my favorite SEC players of all time. He was electric, man. Uh, one of the better sliding door moments in the SEC in the playoff era is what would have happened if McElwain had simply stuck with Greer instead of somehow picking Treon Harris. Well, Treon Harris came out and just played the game of his life to get to game of his life against LSU right after Greer got suspended. So, like somehow, like that was like the best game for a Florida quarterback in a minute, and that was all they've been. They rode off of that the rest of the season. Like, let's see if we can see it again. And boy, didn't they! No, it did not happen. Um, both of those instances, Felipe and pre-suspension Will Greer, an offensive-minded head coach of Florida inherited a six-win team and initially raised those expectations. I guess not six-win team, but uh, a team with six wins or less is what I'm going to say. <laughs> How many they had six wins, Connor? How many wins did they have? Yeah, 2017 Florida, not not quite cracking the, the bowl eligible. I think uh, they both had four. Uh, no, I think 20, 2014 Florida had had six wins. Look okay. this up. We'll get it. We'll get information on this. We got our stats department working hard on this. Twenty fourteen Florida had six wins. Okay, believe that because I remember DJ Durkin coached in the bowl game. We'll you can keep going. I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, just interrupt at any at any given point. <laughs> yeah. Get that. Uh, obviously, the goal for for Napier is to yes, avoid- Yes, four wins. Actually, I don't know why I even looked that up. I joke about that all the time. Uh, wait, 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 wait. You said they both had four wins. Yes. 2014 Florida, six wins, right? Oh, 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 yeah, no, sorry. There was a four-win team before that. You're absolutely right. Okay, you're right. They took over a four and then a six-win team. I have still corrected you way more times in which you've actually been right than the other way around. Mm -hmm. So we got a long ways to go. Oh, they got another, Muschamp got another season after that. This is a revelation for me. I thought they fired him after the four win season. Nah, it was, it was lame duck after that. Ah. Very, very much lame duck 2014. So the goal for Napier is to avoid the shortcomings of his predecessors, right? But his floor in year one and his ceiling are raised if Anthony Richardson is that dude. And to be clear, I'm, I'm talking about the dude who was getting Dak Prescott comps early on last year when he was averaging like 20 yards a touch. Florida fans clamored for him to start. He gets hurt. He still does some of the pregame somersaults, the backflips, but ultimately we didn't really get the full Richardson experience that we could have last year. Dan Mullen wanted to see his four-year investment into Emory Jones pay off. We've talked about this a lot. It prevented the more talented player from seeing reps. That much we know. Here's the beauty of this Napier situation though. He has the same amount of time invested into every quarterback in that room. And in case you forgot what the Florida quarterback room looks like, it's really not a whole lot different than last year, which is a pretty rare thing. It actually held steady and added 
to it instead of just having a mass exodus despite the fact that they lost an offensive-minded quarterback-centric head coach mm -hmm. it's richardson it's emory jones carlos del rio wilson jalen kitna those guys were 2021 recruits and then they also added ohio state transfer jack miller he decided that he'd rather go to florida instead of waiting at least another year behind cj stroud only to then have to battle five-star kyle mccord Florida's quarterback room is full, and it's full because Napier and Mullen like to do pretty similar things. They spread teams out, they have mobile quarterbacks, they occasionally take the, the deep shot downfield, and, and they really like to spread the ball all around the field. No matter who the starter is for Napier, Napier moving forward, we should expect to see more of that misdirection stuff that we saw throughout the Mullen era. People know this by now, but let's be clear. Billy Napier needs to be willing to say that Anthony Richardson is his dude. I get why he probably won't because in this era, guys can have a bad day of practice and hit the portal. That's <laughs> reality. Um, and when you're talking about a quarterback room with four guys who are four-star recruits, the odds of that, it's, it's pretty likely. I mean, no matter who you name as a starter, um, guys aren't necessarily looking at that depth chart seeing QB five all the time. That's not really the way that this works out very often. But I push, I kind of push back on that. And there might be another uh, monologue saved for a different time about like how we talk so much about how difficult it is to have to recruit your own roster in this era. But you also get to recruit the portal and a team that's getting gutted by transfers probably just isn't using the system like it's supposed to. Whatever the case, Florida fans could all agree on one thing last year. And Will, you're not a Florida fan, but you could agree on this as well. Mm -hmm. Anthony Richardson needed more first team reps. Simple as that, right? He was so good, man. From that like USF game on, oh my goodness. FAU game, season opener. Yep. I mean, it was even from that, like it was it was very clear from the jump that you were dealing with a, a special kind of, of player at the quarterback position, albeit one who needed some coaching. Mm -hmm. More thoughts on that in, in a second here. But once it was clear that Emory wasn't gonna be the guy. We needed to see Richardson kind of work through those mistakes because he's by no means a perfect player. I saw in person how quickly it unraveled for him against Georgia. You make mistakes against an all-generation defense, that's gonna come back to bite you, that's just the way that it is. But that was the guy's first career start, and I don't wanna use that as the barometer for future performance, that's not necessarily fair. The LSU game was a much better indication of what the Anthony Richardson experience was with Mullen. Mm -hmm. I went back, I watched all of Richardson's plays in that game. Didn't start, by the way, which is easy to kind of forget if you look at just the box score or something like that. Right. Um, when, when he's right, it's special. It really, really is. And I'm not just talking about the viral stuff, like when he hurdles a guy or he hits a wide open receiver and, and, and he's able to break a tackle or something like that. I, I'm talking about how good he is at selling stuff that's within the scheme, like a little fake pitch to the tailback and disguising what looks like a keeper, but ultimately it's a wheel route to, to the running back or to the tight end. It's lazy to say that Richardson can't work through his progressions. The last play of the game that he had, it was bad, it was real bad. Some of those throws to no one are essentially just him mashing the buttons NCAA 14 <laughs> as he's about to get hit. Like that's that's all he's doing. Everybody's kind of been there. You know that's what exactly actually, that looks like. That's actually a great example of what that is. I've never lined those two up, but yes, that's actually just like, oh, <laughs> shorted down there somewhere. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, just and, and it's and it can be like a, a ball that has varying speeds on it. Like sometimes if you if you just like lightly tap it and then it's the lob, is that that's how that works? I think right. Like you, you have to like hold it down to, to throw it harder or yeah. something. Exactly. Like you just tap it. Yeah. So we get a variety of throws from Anthony Richardson when he's in those situations, and when it's bad, it's really bad. When his first read isn't there and he gets pressured it gets rough in a hurry and understandably so in high school richardson i mean this is a guy who could just kind of find his way out of that and you see there are situations in which you, you watch him against some of these group of five teams where they can have three guys around him and it just doesn't matter they can't bring him down and the sec you can't just casually escape a four or five man rush while keeping your eyes downfield i know bryce young makes it look so much easier than it actually is but what you also see in that LSU game was a play like that game-tying touchdown to Jacob Copeland. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Third and 10, Florida is on the LSU 33. It's a seven-point game, Florida's down seven. LSU sends four and it gets picked up by Florida's offensive line. Richardson looks left, it's not there. So he sees his back is in the flat on the right side, but he's gonna be well short of the line to gain on third and 10. But down the right sideline, he's got Copeland with a step. So he steps up in the pocket and delivers a dime. Perfect pass in the end zone, touchdown, game is tied. That's the type of stuff that makes you think, all right, that's coachable. Mm -hmm. That's up to Napier. That's what he needs to be able to get out of him. It's up to Napier to get that out of Richardson while also cutting down his mistakes, of which, like we said, there were plenty. Richardson had an interception once every 13 pass attempts. Oh, wow. Mm. Not great. The good news is that Richardson is now working with someone who has a history of cutting down on his quarterback's mistakes. Levi Lewis, great quarterback for the Raging Cajuns the last three years. Very good quarterback. Let's say very, very good. good. Yeah. We don't want to use great for everybody, but he is a different physical specimen than Richardson is. And not just because he's a lefty. He's like 5'10", buck 90. I mean, he's nobody's going to confuse those two guys. Mm -hmm. In those three seasons with Billy Napier, Levi Lewis had a 65 to 15 TD to ratio. More importantly, in those three seasons, that's a large sample size against FBS competition. They faced their fair share of, of solid power five competition as well. The guy threw a pick once every 71 attempts. Joe Burrow was essentially the perfect quarterback in 2019. And even he, threw an interception once every 67 attempts that year. Obviously, there's there's give and take with that, of course. You don't want a quarterback that's afraid to take chances. There's a fine line there, right? And everybody is trying to find what that is. But even if you want to include Manny Wilkins, who was Napier's quarterback during that one season when he was the offensive coordinator at Arizona State 2017, guy had one interception every 51 throws. Richardson has easily the highest upside of any quarterback that Napier has worked with since, I don't know, like redshirt freshman Taj Boyd at Clemson, <laughs> yeah. 2010. And even that, I don't, I don't know, that's that's kind of, that's probably debatable. Richardson we might already be- slandering Taj Boyd on this year's podcast. Look, I love not, Taj Boyd, a thick king. Great college player, great college player. If we're talking about like, oh boy, take over a game at a moment's notice, special, uh, maybe I'll give the benefit of the doubt to third year Anthony Richardson as opposed to redshirt freshman Tosh Boyd. I'll just yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't a full-time starter when Napier was there. 
I, I try and hold off judgment on guys until we see them actually get to be the week to week starter. You know, it's like, I don't want to judge you for coming into this game and being kind of a, a gadget guy or whatever that was. And that's unfair to say that about Richardson because he was so much more, which is why we got to see that skill set. But I, I would still argue that he really didn't get that opportunity last year to be the week to week guy to get to plan for you know, an opposing defense and get all those reps with the first teamers. He needs to get it with Napier. I, I absolutely think he does. Napier can be politically correct all he wants. He can declare it a true quarterback battle. You want to not piss off all these quarterbacks, fine, that's on you. But he better know that he's got a legitimate X factor in that room who already showed that he can do some incredibly special things. Might not be a bad idea to give Richardson the attention he needs. Will, we talked about Richardson a lot last year. Mm -hmm. But does it feel like he's got perhaps as much potential to unlock as any non-Georgia player in the East? And maybe maybe even we should include Georgia because, you know, Lord knows we saw a lot of their, their underclassmen kind of on the big stage last year. I mean, potential to unlock, I feel like that's probably still Spencer Rattler, right? I mean, that dude... The yet to unlock whatever potential we have seen. Uh, <laughs> unlockable potential is at an all-time high with that guy because with Richardson, I honestly saw more than I liked than I saw with Radler. But yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And like his reps were just so weird, man. Like really, truly, it's like, I mean, yeah, it's like he, um, he started, well, he didn't start, but he got like starters rep, reps against LSU. And then finally, like, I guess he, did he start against Georgia? Yeah, sorry. That was his first career start. Right. Like, I, it would be impossible to mismanage that worse than Mullen did. I mean, it was almost like it was like he had hope merchanted everyone on Emory Jones. And then it, it with no I mean, all Emory Jones had done is stay there, which like, let's take a quick aside. What is that guy doing? Why is he still at Florida? I OK, I, I want to say this at the top because this this is this context is worth remembering anytime Emory Jones name gets brought up. Mm hmm. Kid has handled this as well as you could have asked for. Oh, 100%. We are like 100%. off the field Emory Jones fans, 100%. And so I think that is why in certain spots he has been given the benefit of the doubt and his willingness to embrace Anthony Richardson and not just be like, screw this, I'm out of here. Right. Uh, some guys absolutely would have in that spot, um, 100%. And they would have been gone midseason. They would have tried to salvage whatever stock they had left bounced and said, no, this isn't for me. I don't really need this in my life. I don't need my mom getting all these attacks when, whenever she goes to a game. That's yeah. kind of, I don't want to say that's, you need to just accept the way that, that it is for a Florida starting quarterback, but I guarantee you in the last 30 years, we could sit here and talk to Florida quarterbacks who have had their parents had some very ugly things said in their vicinity. So I don't want to make hey. it seem like that's just him, but I think he's been given the benefit of the doubt. I think he's still trying to figure things out. If Emory Jones ends up transferring post-spring, would not surprise me in the least bit. He entered the transfer portal mid-December, find out after the bowl game, he's like, ah, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stick around. I'm, I'm gonna figure this out. And you know what, maybe he ends up going to a different situation, but I think he maybe did not see the opportunity he was looking for. And maybe he's gonna wait and he's gonna see if a, a team has an injury or a team is desperate and then the market opens up again. But if I had to guess, I would think that all of those things kind of contributed because I can't imagine he's expecting 100% to go in as the starter, right? Like you should know at this point, 
Anthony Richardson's got that leg up, even with the new coaching staff, right. even knowing that they don't have the time invested into him more so than you or something like that. Right, exactly. That That's why that is a puzzling move because it's almost like a, a much, very, very, very diet sugar-free version of like the Jalen Hurts situation where it's like, hey, like you're good, you worked out here, but like you probably just need to go somewhere else because we have our guy. I just, yeah, maybe he just likes being, he likes the situation in Gainesville, wants to try to win the job at a camp, who knows, but anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, so so point being, like, I couldn't uh, have imagined that situation getting split kind of worse for Anthony Richardson's development because the games he played in were the hardest games of the year. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were the games that it's like, all right, UGA and LSU, like, those are... That LSU game got sideways so quick for Florida, it was unexpected to literally everyone. And, and so he was put in a situation... I mean, when Emory threw one of the worst picks I've ever seen, it was like, we got to go with Richardson. There's not really an option here. We need to win this game. It's a back-and-forth game. And so it's like, I, I think that... He just got put in positions to fail. So, like, when you see him with the ball in his hands, you see him as a playmaker, you know what he is capable of. And I think that we've talked about the Mullen situation at nauseum here. He was trying to save his job. He had a lot going on. And, and I, like, I really do think that, that, that you know, Emory Jones was this kind of, like, apex crown jewel of the Mullen. Like, trust me, I don't need to recruit. I have my guys. My guys will win. And so I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why that played out the way it did is it was just a little bit of stubbornness to go away from him. But, again, like you said, we've never seen what Anthony Richardson can do with, number one, you know, this staff, which we – can't praise enough. I mean, truly, the guys are night and day different from Mullen's staff. And then second, you know, with a, with a first-team reps out of camp, week-to-week -week reps, chemistry with the wide receivers. If you come in as a backup quarterback, everyone always wants to talk about, like, oh, we didn't game plan for this guy. Like, coaches try to, like, you know, put a, put a smoke screen on who are we starting. It's like, yeah, but, like, if the receivers are used to Emory Jones kind of, like, laying the ball out there, and then you get Anthony Richardson in there, he's just throwing darts. It's a completely different type of receiver totally. you need to be, you know? Yep. Yeah, I, I think the Mullen aspect of this uh, and understanding how this impacts um, Emory Jones moving forward, um, it's important, but it's not ultimately, it shouldn't ultimately factor into anything that Billy Napier says or does. And no, for sure. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, he's going to be able to restart and get a whole offseason. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's fitting if you go back and watch the 21 season opener that Florida had against FAU. They're talking on the broadcast about how Mullen builds them up emotionally. It's not how fast you can get on the field. It's how good your career can be long term. Mm -hmm. And literally as that's happening, Richardson busts a 19-yard run, like the most <laughs> casual play he could possibly have. And it didn't even look like he was trying. I know he was, and I hate it when people say, oh, guys aren't even trying, he was able to do that. But right. that just, that kind of encapsulates everything you need to know right there. Mm -hmm. Mullen was so dead, fa dead, dead set on on developing this way, this sort of pipeline, this is what it's gonna look like. Eventually Richardson will have his turn have his turn. And now we've reached this point where it's you know, Richardson's also not gonna get the benefit of the doubt in the same way that he did last year. When he made a mistake, it was, man, Mullen, I can't believe you didn't give this guy more reps. If he's making those same mistakes this year, yeah, Napier's gonna hear some some flack about that. That's par for the course of Florida. That's that's the way that it works. But he's gonna hear that in a much different way, especially if he's getting those starter reps. People don't wanna just see potential. Potential is all well and good and it's fun. But if you're making these backbreaking mistakes and you're just costing your team in these key spots, then you're gonna have a lot of the same things said about you that were said about Emory Jones. So I, I'm very, very intrigued to see the next chapter 
of the Anthony Richardson story. I'm glad that he didn't transfer uh, outside of the league or something like that because now we get to kind of see the way that this can play out and maybe play out with the right offensive mind. You know, it's Mullen had obviously an unbelievable history with quarterbacks, but he couldn't quite figure out his quarterback room last year and it cost him in a big way. All right, let's kick it to Chris Fowler. Got into a ton of different stuff with his career. Talked about that Katy Perry scene at Ole Miss, the Corso F-bomb, much, much more. We will absolutely have him on again before the start of the season to get a bit more in depth with you know specific 2022 storylines and whatnot. But I've been wanting to dig into his career with him for a really, really long time. And it was a blast to be able to do that. So here is Chris Fowler. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is the voice of college football, Chris Fowler. Uh, Chris, we're a month removed from the national championship. Have you had time to come back down to earth yet? And if so, how long did that take you? Man, we had we had four games in 11 days, which wrapped up in Indy with Georgia Bama. So I was pretty much on the ground, not down to earth when that when that span ended. That included the semifinal flying. I live in Miami, so we flew from here to LA overnight on a very nice plane provided by Disney. Did the Rose Bowl the next day, which really isn't done. If people don't know, you don't do a game one night and then do a game the next afternoon across the country. It's kind of a once in a career opportunity, which we which we signed up for and loved. Then we did a detour to the Broncos Chiefs, which was the Saturday before the championship game in Indy. So after those four, we, we had some good tequila. Kirk and I were sitting around with some other members of our crew. And um, I, I loved being a part of calling that championship game. I know it started off with a bunch of field goals, but it got good at the end. And the, the stories that played out were fun. So then, yeah, you hit you hit the party hard. You hit the finish line and you collapse for a while. I was in Bristol, Connecticut doing the Australian Open, not in Australia for the first time in a long time. We, we used to, I used to jump a plane for Australia the Thursday after the championship game. Oh this, goes way back, this goes back to the BCS championship way before the playoff. And so, you know, 24 hours later, you're down in Melbourne, Australia, and you're fired up because it's a new season. It's tennis, and I, which, which is my co-favorite sport. Football fans never believe that. But, but this year, we didn't spend the money to go down there. Uh, contract running out, blah, blah, blah. So we're in Connecticut working the third shift and the mattress is starting like 2, 3, 3.30 in the morning. So then I had to get through that. And now I'm now I'm sort of in this really nice chill off-season phase where I just kind of like uh, step away and and um, follow it. I love I loved the NFL. So I was following the NFL, great playoffs, but just being a fan, just like sitting there with my, my wife on the couch. We're sitting there watching the game thinking, oh, I don't want this to end. When this ends, football's over, right? For like, yeah. and I don't. I know there's a USFL. I know there's all this stuff going on. Spring ball. Yeah. Don't talk to me about that. Real, like real <laughs> fall football is was like 200 days away from starting. Like week, you know, week one, 193 days to week zero. I mean, I'm not that I'm counting it down. Do it by days. weeks. Don't do it by days. That's too <laughs> tough. You don't want that. You're right. Well, I mean, you prefer weeks. How, how do you want us to start counting down to the start of the season? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I always, I, I can do the days when it gets inside a hundred and then anything before that, I'm just like, I don't want it. That's, that's, that's too much. It felt like, didn't it feel like a long time from now And I love other sports. Like there's plenty for, uh, for me to, you know, to uh, put my focus on, but it's obviously not, it's not quite the same thing. And I'm not, uh, I'm not wrapped up in other sports the way I'm in football. 
So for, for those who maybe somehow don't follow you on social media, you will do uh, these, these nightcap recaps after a game <laughs> that you're calling. And it, it's something that, that seems so simple. And now maybe in this world in which Twitter spaces are becoming a huge thing, but I think it's such a great thing to be able to kind of communicate to the audience. And for you, it's probably a little bit therapeutic in, in some ways because you can't always put a, put a bow on a game in the way that you maybe want to at the end. Sometimes you got to cut to you know, the next thing that's coming on ESPN or if it's a big fight or something like that. But what do those kind of do for you and what, what kind of gave you the inspiration to start doing those? Because we had those kind of post-game conversations with Tequila anyway. We just didn't record them and post them. <laughs> and so the idea of just being a raw kind of post-game wrap-up, can you believe what happened there? And how about this game? And that, I mean, that that's what Kirk and I would do. And sometimes the Bear would join in and others would be sitting around. And so we sort of decided to let's record it and share it if we feel like it. Um, and and that's, that's where they came from. I mean, the, then, you know, it's not live. Obviously we wouldn't do them live because then stuff just gets out there that you regret. We, we have the sort of the ability to take, look at it. Eh, did we step over the line? Maybe, but we'll post it or maybe we shouldn't. Or, you know, I remember, you know, Kirk would get concerned a few times because he would just get going and, um, you know, maybe an F-bomb slips out <laughs> from him or me. And we thought, eh, you know, should we? And then, then you start, as people begin to watch it, you realize that it has an impact. You know, you, you can relate to this. This content goes places and impacts people. And then you start to feel like maybe I'm not someone that sits around and worries about my brand. Like, but I, I do, you know, you, you have to be aware that what you say is out there and lives. So we still do them. We don't do them as regularly. I will do them um, solo. Also, too, I'm, I'll be 100% honest with you. A lot of times we were doing them in a plane, like we Kirk and I would share a plane and hub out of Nashville, which is where he lives or somewhere else and sort of, you know, share that. And then it was easy to do, but then COVID hits, there's all these regulations that we're not supposed to be, even though working in the booth, we're not really supposed to be unmasked right. on a plane, even if it's a private plane with each other. So it just wasn't worth getting the COVID police all over us internally and, and, and so we sort of stopped doing it for that reason. I think we'll, there's, we'll look for more chances to do the, the, the mutual ones. But in the meantime, like, yeah, I did it for the Super Bowl. I, it, it's, it's just pour drinks, wind down and talk football. I mean, that's what you that's what your community is doing. Right. After so a Saturday do. night or a Sunday. So we just felt like felt like joining in. I do enjoy it. I mean, when I did one for the Super Bowl, um, a lot of your people watching this might relate. I view it through a little bit different lens. I don't have like hardcore you know, NFL fandom for one team. I'm basically a Denver fan because I grew up in Colorado, but I'm not a rabid Broncos fan the way people are. I watch these games. Oh, the Giants suck, but I like Saquon. I love covering him. I, or, you know, Burrow, that, that 19 LSU team will always live with me. It's one of the, the favorite experiences I had was being around – LSU midseason, seeing Burrow then after having seen him at Ohio State at practice. Now we see him settled in, but not they're not yet this giant yet. And then we see him at the end of the year. Well, he's Joe Cool. He's, he was just the way at the Super Bowl and the playoff run that we saw him the night before they beat Clemson's brains in, right? It was that, that kind of swag. You know, just Joe had the drip and, they, and so, so did Chase and so did – Edwards Alaire, who were sitting on either side of him in that meeting, and we couldn't believe walking out of that 
how cocky he was. And so <laughs> I said he's the most likable cocky player I've ever covered because he is. He's, he's just incredibly confident, cocky, and the team feeds off it and it works. And obviously everything he said to us, to Kirk, myself, Rinaldi, Maria Taylor was in there, was true. They went out and they did everything to Clemson. They said they were going to do, and I'll bet you that he had that same kind of confidence throughout the playoff games. He might have told Michaels and Collinsworth the same stuff before they played the Rams. I don't, that didn't come to pass because they couldn't block for him. But I, I bet you he still is the same way as he was in college. And so I was, I pulled for him, a staffer I covered at Georgia and his journey. So it's more individuals kind of, I, I view the NFL that way, like hoping these guys that I got to know have success. In this job, I've been fortunate enough to, to kind of see up close the way that on-air talent is is able to prep for whatever they're doing. And sometimes that's a game. Sometimes that's in studio stuff. Like I, I've seen a game prep up, up close from Tom Hart, Jordan Rogers, Cole Kubelik. And I was able to shadow those guys and they couldn't have been more loose before a game. And I, I've seen the different approaches in studio, like Chris Doring flips the switch from your bro one second to this locked in analyst, the next. And then there's somebody like Gene Chizik who he, he puts on his glasses. He wants to be in his own world. And it's amazing to watch reading Herb Street's book. I believe the word that he used for you for your prep was intense. Whether that's college game day, calling Saturday night games like you it do wasn't now. Just prep. He, he, he made it seem like I live my life with this intensity, that I'm intense when I brush my teeth. Like, <laughs> I've given him a little shit about this. Like, Kirk, come on, you're going to give people the idea that I'm just like this, this crazy, intense person. So clear, never... clear that up then. Yeah. What, what, is, that, what is that like? Well, I'm wearing a hoodie and a T-shirt, which is my normal um, uniform. Um, no, I'm, I'm not, I, I take my, take my performance seriously and that I want to meet my own standard. And I care much more about that than I do what any critic says about it. And that's not meant in an arrogant way. I just think that if you meet your own standards in life, whatever it is you do, and you have a high standards for yourself, that's the definition of success. Okay. So whether or not the audience is 23 million or 19 million, or that doesn't really define success for me, whether or not. 101 people send you texts, great call, or it's crickets and nobody says that, <laughs> doesn't really affect me. What's written, I mean, it, it, you just, I think that a lot of us on our team, it's such a collaboration. It's not about just me or Kirk. It's, it's everybody working together and everybody has the same high standards. And you probably witnessed that. And, and, and that's, it comes across sometimes as really intense because we all just find ways of getting in that, that place that I call relaxed intensity. You know, it's the zone for an athlete, right? It's the zone for a performer who's putting on any sort of show in front of anybody, right? You, you want to be relaxed because if you're all wound up and in your head, there's all that static and that static gets in the way of clear thinking and it gets in the way of being creative and spontaneous and finding ways to put words to what you see on the field, right? I mean, it's different than a pregame show prep. I mean, game day, I, there's so much information. It's so broad, relatively shallow. And the, I don't have to know everything about all those games. You just got to know enough about all of them. You do a game, it's narrow, but deep, right? You got to know the team inside out. And so that's why what Kirk does is pretty remarkably juggles it on Saturday. And I did it for a season. It's incredibly hard to do. So my preparation is not very wide anymore. It's extremely deep on those two teams, but it doesn't matter 
how well prepared you are, what you've done with your time all week, if you choke when the ball's kicked off. So getting in that right frame of mind, right? It's not that different from trying to get in the, in the right headspace to play a game. You do your prep, then you find that place where you're relaxed and focused and the wheels are not spinning so fast. I'm not sitting there looking at this chart and thinking, oh shit, how am I going to get all this information in? How am I going to show my preparation? I've said this a lot. I don't believe you can over-prepare, but you absolutely can overuse your preparation in a game. And you know what that's like. And so does everybody listening to this. When it gets smothered by stats and data and anecdotes, nothing can breathe because everybody is so focused on showing what they know. I just know how Michaels and Collinsworth do a Super Bowl. I mean, you don't think that they could smother it, but you pull back. The bigger the game, the more you want to pull back. It's tough too. And especially like I'll have Saturdays where I'll look up and I'm playing the podcast. I'm looking down. I'm like, I have 14 pages of notes right now. I'm not getting through all this stuff. Like, what am I doing? I need to take a step back and pause. And that's not, you know, that's a little bit different because it's, it's pre-recorded. But, you know, one of, one of the, the other things I remember from, from Herbie's book uh, about you was you deciding to step away from college game day, 2014, the year where you, you did both and you were calling games. Um, and, you know, I, I remember reading that you wanted to be part of these iconic moments. And I, I see when I introduce you as like the voice of college football, that brings a smile to your face. And it should because you are. Yeah, I, I smile because I've heard it a lot. I take issue with that. There is no voice to this sport anymore. There's a lot of voices of college football. I'm proud to be one of them. Obviously, we have a nice schedule and I'm lucky to do big games. So I accept the fact that we might be the voice of the championship game or, or the playoff or the Rose Bowl or Saturday night on ABC. That, that's just factual. But there are so many different voices in this sport and not all of them are broadcasting on television either. I mean, there's a lot back in the day when Keith Jackson did my job at ABC, there were so few games on television, you know, and, and they did seem like when, when Brenton Kirk had that schedule every week, they had a top five game. It was unbelievable. Well, then the pie gets divvied up. Uh, a lot more slices go to more people. And we don't have that same sort of schedule where every week we're doing the biggest game. Sometimes, you know, that's Nestler and Danielson. Sometimes it's Gus and Joel and Fox. Sometimes it's an ESPN game. And so we're, I'm good with that. I don't need to be the voice of anything, and, but I, I'm proud to be a part of it. And, you know, you, you, you show up and do the job best you can. And if someone likes someone else's style better, that's cool. I'm good with that. I mean, I, I'm the same way when I'm a viewer, but you know, uh, that that's a really awesome legacy to not take over, but to be a part of the voices who have stamped their own unique way of seeing a game and talking about it on top of the images, the game is the thing. The players are the thing. You just provide a soundtrack to it, but I'm, I'm proud to do it. And it's neat to have someone say, Oh, we, we watched the game at the stadium and we came home and we, we listened to your call of George's touchdowns 10 times and we jumped up and down every time. That's neat. I, I, I mean, look at me. I'm not, not going to lie. That does bring a smile on my face. Like, you know what? I'm doing what I love and somebody else got pumped up listening to it. Now, who, would, who wouldn't appreciate that? You made the decision to leave game day and that's like your baby and seeing what it grew into and obviously Corso and Herb Street, they they were such a big part of that as well and in getting you guys to that place. But how difficult was that decision to say, you know what, 
I, I want to go all in with this and I have to, to put this dream aside to pursue another one. Well, it was tough to step away for a few reasons. The relationships were the main thing. You know, you mentioned the chemistry that were that built up that was so natural and authentic, you know, over the years. And, you know, you don't get many chances in your career to build something from scratch, basically. Game Day existed for a few years before I did it, but the, the network didn't really put any emphasis on it. And it didn't put any emphasis on it the first years I hosted it either. It, it had to finally grow, got on the road for the first time in 93, just one game, 94, 95. We started getting the road gradually. And then basically the fact that campuses opened their sums to us, students turned up, that is what helped us grow the show and make it stand out and make it unique. And so once we got on the road, the thing took off. But, but I do feel a great deal of pride, not, not just at hosting it for 25 years, but being a part of a core group that built it from something that the network wanted to cancel in 1990 because it was a half hour in a studio and nobody watched it to something that made a lot of money for the company that means a lot to a lot of people over the years and becomes you know part of the fabric of the sport, which of course it still is six, seven years after I've gone. And that's, that's neat to hear, Connor, when somebody says, you know, my first experiences of watching sports were sitting with my dad and watching you guys on game day on Saturday mornings. And that, that's cool. That, you know, when, you, when you do something for that long and it grows into something that means uh, a lot to people, that's cool. When I stepped away, you know, it wasn't like, hey, I just turned my back on game day. To be clear, I haven't talked about this a lot. You know, the company was not eager to have me do both roles. Okay. So I wanted to do it for one year, do game day, and then do the primetime game. That was the year after um, Musburger had stepped away and we had the playoff in 14. So it was, a, it was a natural time. I was super eager to call games, but wanted to see how it would work with game day since Kirk had done both for a while. Right. And that was pretty taxing. I was pretty convinced. Um, during that year that this is not really sustainable. And for a couple of reasons, one, the host role of game day, what Reese Davis does now is extremely amazing. It's you maybe seen it or not. You've seen what goes into these studio shows. You mentioned it's a three hour monster and it's, it's the host that has to carry a lot of the burden. I always felt like I was one of the editorial voices of the show. If we missed something, I, that was on me. If we didn't, express something well that was on me i didn't get the most out of the analysts in that segment you know and so i i, I felt a pressure one of the reasons why kirk would write in his book about how intense is because i felt a responsibility and and it was i was enjoying myself but sometimes this is a good lesson to everyone but especially if you're young like remember to show it remember to show others how enjoyable it is doing what you're doing because it's contagious. And I think far too often I allowed the burden of hosting that show and then knowing I had to go do a game that night to sort of mask the fact that I was having a great time doing it. And when I, when I went back, it was the opening game day of the 15 season. Uh, I went on there to sort of like take a bow and say farewell. And I remember kiss Corso on the cheek and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, that was a little, that was much more emotional for me than anything that's ever happened in the show because I, you, you sort of like realize that uh, these are the guys, this is the setting that you're going to miss coming on the air with game day. And then the picks segment 
leading up to Corso's head gear. Those are the parts of the show that I miss the most, uh, you know, just, and just being around the guys. But listen, I mean, it, people don't really understand this, but when you, when you get into this business, there's a, there's a spark. There's something that makes you think, hey, I want to do this like for a living if I can. And that was always calling live games for me. I never really wanted to work in the studio. Game day, getting out of the studio kept all of us involved. Yeah. No, no, nobody who did that show would, would have stayed around. I, was, I, I shouldn't do that. Maybe Corsa would have. I don't know. We, we had a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> totally would have. Road. You know what I mean? I, no one would want to sit there for 25 years in a studio while games are going on around the country and everybody else is having all the fun. So game day being out at the biggest game, God, people don't understand how cool that is. Like I, I go to where our schedule takes us right now. Game day goes everywhere. Like I saw incredible games that CBS had the rights to, that, that you know, NBC had the rights to at Notre Dame, that Fox had the rights to. And I just got to watch ringside. <laughs> when you do the show, I would just hang out and watch it on the field. When some of the craziest stuff that's happened in the last 25 years took place like in front of your eyes. Now, I never got tired of that. That was that was awesome. Um, so I do miss sometimes like when there's this monster game that we don't have the rights to. We're over here calling somebody else and there's a great scene. I get a little envious because the game day guys can, be, can still be a part of that. Two uh, iconic game day moments I got to ask you about. First, and I know you've talked about this before, the, uh, the Corso F-bomb. <laughs> your reaction to that, where you just kind of put your head down, it told the entire story of that moment. But what was going through your mind as he does that? Disbelief. Like, I heard it on my ear, but does that mean that they went on the air? Like, you know, <laughs> sure. He's like, I, I, I'm pretty sure he said it because I heard, you know, we wear these uh, airtight earpieces that are so, they block everything out or you couldn't yep. hear yourself over the crowd. So when you hear it in there, you're pretty convinced that went on the air, but then it, it, and then I saw Kirk's reaction and I saw Carl Lewis's reaction. Then I said, Oh, and I saw the crowd dying. I said, Oh yeah, that, that was out there. And so what are you going to do? You just kind of, you just laugh. And the, the, the long story behind that that I'll tell very quickly is that the reason why Lee said that is because he had some elaborate fake left go right scheme cooked up, which he does pretty frequently these days on game day where he's going to build up SMU and then pick Houston. Well, the director wasn't quite in sync what he was talking about wasn't really what was being shown to the audience. And I think he just felt like at some point, F it, like whom, who am I trying to kid here? I'm picking Houston because that was the obvious pick in that game. And the fact that it came out, then of course people don't remember. He, he tried to apologize the first time and he comes out like laughing and it didn't come out very <laughs> sincere. And they said, yeah, uh, coach, um, <clears throat> we, we got to, uh, we got to redo that. I would encourage anybody, I, I'm not to plug my podcast, but I do have one. And we did an episode where Kirk and the bear came on and we did, we tell that story in great detail and they go on and tell the other part of the story, which was they flew out of Houston and landed in Eugene where SC is playing Oregon. And all the coaches wanted to talk about pregame was what Corso said on game day. It's very funny. So uh, it, it's the Fowler who you got and it's, it's season two Episode one, I think you'll, you'll see it, but it, we, it's an hour and 15 of like game day stories. And it, we had a blast doing it. Another thing, and you've, you've talked about this before, 
Katy Perry at Ole Miss, <laughs> arguably the wildest, the wildest off the field moment that the sport has had in the 21st century. You compared it to Woodstock before Katy even showed up, which is an unbelievable thing. If you go back and watch that, what gets lost in that clip, and I rewatched it this morning again, was you don't try and talk over her. You don't try and censor her. It was organic. It was just kind of there. But at the same time, like you're working for a Disney network. What's a story from that whole thing that maybe people don't know about? Well, I was so pumped God, because that, that's a show we waited for a long time to do. And we wanted to get it right. We wanted to capture the Grove scene in a way that hadn't been captured before. Because I thought, I thought it had been, nobody had even come close. So a ton of work went into it. The directors, the camera guy, we got it in a way, I think, I think doing it the first time in a, with a fresh eye, I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. The game day went, went back there to Oxford. It's different when it's, when it's been done before we had, right. it had not been done that way before. So I was euphoric because we had had some good fun. We had talked about the game and then Katie comes up there and all you want is just awesome punctuation to it. But what we knew was a great show. And once you see, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. She gets it. This is golden. This is awesome. I, I think all of us just felt like this is the perfect way to end. It was my most enjoyable game day ever. And, and the fact that she had everything worked up, I mean, she doesn't know that much about these individual games and she was extremely well prepped, but she was such a show person. She, she's obviously, I mean, hello, she's like a world-class entertainer at the top of the pyramid there. And so she knew what she was doing and she brought something to every single pick. And I think the the, the final thing when she ripped the big owl, the elephant head off of Corso and threw it away. You can see the look in his face. He's wearing like his <laughs> Colonel Sanders bow tie and suit. And it's just hysterical. I and mean, it, it's so unexpected. Like there's no, there's no way that she could have known she's going to do that. And he certainly didn't see it coming and nobody did. And so, and then, you know, the folklore that Ole Miss wins the game. She does the uh, the jump off the bar into the crowd, and that bar becomes famous because of that. And you know, I I think they they were hopeful of getting her back this past season, and some things got in the way. But yeah, I mean, for me, that's that that was the most enjoyable uh, game day I ever did. I got one more for you before we get to some rapid fire. Um, I, I always wonder about this with uh, with a broadcast and. No, I think I feel like we see sometimes uh, maybe it's a championship broadcast. There's there's a line that you have ready to go. Maybe if this team wins or if this team wins, and then there are the other like organic moments. Your Saquon say bye bye call is <laughs> one of my favorite. Like first of all, real quick, it, that was that organic or did you have that one ready to go in case he had a big run? No, no, I didn't have it ready to go. I mean, I, I think you think about hey, what do you want to say about this guy if he makes a great play? You know, because he's he's likely to. But I don't believe in scripting that stuff. I think if people look at um, championship calls that are made organically, I don't know. If you listen to enough sports and you know what's going on, they sound different from ones that are scripted. And I, I don't want to ever sound scripted because, because they're not. I mean, you, you, I, I do tennis. So when you do the championship tennis matches, I do spend some time thinking about, you know, what would it mean historically – in the arc of this tournament, the whole year, if Serena wins this trophy or Roger or Rafa or Novak, you know, when Murray won Wimbledon, I walked around Wimbledon Village. It had been 77 years since a British guy had won Wimbledon. So the, obviously that, that was the story. So what would it mean? Um, and, and so I, I kind of get chills thinking about that. It, it, that. That's the fun part, but you don't script a line because how in the world could you? Like, how, how would I have scripted, you know, 
Georgia's line or, or, you know, when Alabama wins in overtime, I mean, it, it's not, what are you going to say? Yeah. You, you, the, the, the game changed like that it goes from second and 26 and they're probably going to lose to it. They just won, you know, eight seconds later. So I don't, I don't believe in having a line ready. I, I think that it, it should just, you should think about it, think about the storyline. So, so it, you, you're not, you're not, clueless in there but i but in terms of putting something down that you want to say no that doesn't work that way i mean because sometimes the game's a blowout sometimes it comes out of the last play well anybody can start shouting some pre or pre-scripted line when when clemson is killing alabama lsu is blowing out clemson i mean yeah it doesn't make any sense you yeah the 2017 blow 2017 Georgia, there was no pre like predetermined line about, about that a touchdown Alabama wins. That's not that you don't need to script that, that no, if Georgia had won, you didn't have a oh, line like ready to go in 17. Yeah. In 17. Oh no, no, no. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, that the fun calls are the ones that are in the moment with, with yeah. um, Ohio state fans like the fact that they got an, Oh, by the way, late touchdown. And pe- people still come up to you and say, and, and I said, Ezekiel Elliott, Ezekiel Elliott dots the eye of this championship game. They scored a late. I thought they were going to take a knee. They're down there close against Oregon. If you recall, they didn't need to score. Mm-hmm. They just handed the ball and he's ran on the end zone. And that made the margin bigger. I think it made it 22 or something. But, but that was something that just came out. And, and I, I think that, um, no, I, like, I don't even remember what I said when Georgia finally won. I, I think that, the, the, the play that sealed it is where that's where the excitement is, man. That's where I listen to. I'm a huge soccer fan. I listen to a lot of soccer. I even take things from how soccer is called and use it in football. And I talk a lot about this with other broadcasters because it's not always the way it's been done in the sport. But when they say, you know, like goal Ronaldo, listen to it. If it's done well, boom, here comes another line right after it that immediately frames what that goal means, right? So you're not just you're not just stating a fact a goal was scored or a touchdown was made. You're you're trying to come up with the line right after that. And I think that that that's where the thrill is. It's because it's it's no possible way to script that. And you just hope that you're in the right frame of mind that something comes out that makes sense. And and the way you do that is what I spoke about before, getting into a place of relaxed intensity where you're the, the thoughts are just kind of coming in. And yet you're still checking yourself. And I could hopefully say something really stupid right. that's been is married to that video forever and embarrassing forever. So I just said, you know, um, in a Ringo, I said, uh, and George is going to conquer the Crimson Tide. And that's why that was the sort of the line after the, um, the touchdown, after I announced that he had scored on the pick six. And that's because that's what it was. They just sealed the game. And, but the way of putting it is, is what I was happy about. Like, not Georgia's going to win a championship. Georgia is going to conquer the Crimson Tide, right? Because that's the thing. That's They have been the nemesis. They have been the obstacle, the roadblock. They've broken Georgia hearts a million times. So winning the championship is right there, but conquering Alabama to do it is a big part of it. So that's where I think that those people in, in, that are in my business, you strive to sort of have in the moment something like that to say and that's what that's where the fun part is george on the mountaintop demons be gone 
and the draw oh, yeah, over I the national champions at last. I, I love that. That call. I didn't, yeah, I didn't even remember. That's what I said. I mean, I that that I, now that you say it, that that's right. I think I think I I played with the idea that you know, they had to exercise demons. That obviously there was a lot that went into that. It wasn't just another matchup. Yeah, there was a lot in that game. It wasn't like. Georgia was beating Michigan for the championship or Cincinnati or anybody else. It was Alabama. And so, yeah, I think that you know, I, have, I have so many Georgia fans who are friends of mine. One of them was, one of them was in the booth right after the game, drinking a beer, crying. I said, come on in here. Come on. He was in, like next door in the space. Come on in here. And it, I just loved that aspect of it, that it meant so much to them that they felt like, you know, I can die now. I've seen Georgia win a championship, you know, and, and, in my lifetime, uh, or at least in their prime, and if they didn't have to go back 42 years. So, I know you're busy. Uh, do you got time for five quick yeah, rapid fire? Perfect. It's just first thing that comes to mind. We'll just we'll go from there. <laughs> I won't get you in trouble. You're good. You're good. All right. First one. You're a big fitness guy. Bench, squat, deadlift. Which one? Deadlifts. Deadlifts are my favorite. All day. Uh, squat would be the least favorite. <laughs> Who doesn't like the bench? But a deadlift feels good. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Just lifting a large amount of weight. Just lifting a lot of weight. The whole body's involved. Yeah. Uh, similar, but different. I asked uh, Reese Davis uh, about this last year because I'm convinced that neither of you guys have aged. Um, he told me <laughs> face lotion was the trick and I, I'm not trying to call it your age here, but you, you are going to be 60 this year. Everybody listening to this is just like, no, there's no way. And that's a testament to what you've done. What's your trick to looking like the same guy who's been on our TV for decades? The hair might not be completely natural. I mean, I, I think you have to be acknowledged your hair is not natty, but that, that's, oh, well. that, that's just TV. That's just everybody at a certain point, you know, whether, whether or not you just, you just got to kind of like don't do it badly. Um, no, I mean, I think I, 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 look, I told you how young I looked when I started at ESPN. I, I looked like I was a teenager. And um, so that, that just helps. I mean, you know, my mom, part of it's just genetics. I do, I do second his notion. Skin lotion is very important. So, so is fitness and staying in shape and getting in, you know, um, you know, drink more water and less tequila as you age. Although I still like the latter, but um, yeah, I mean, if you generally take care of yourself, you have a better chance to look younger into your latter stage. Pretty freaky to think about 60, brother. I'm going to tell you, it's like just before next football season, like that's, that's a little just for your audience is way, way, way a long way from getting to that milestone. I'll tell you that that's not going to be easy. <laughs> oh, you won't look at everybody will be like, Oh my God, he turned 60. There's no yeah, way. Man. You won't believe it. Um, all right. You work under the Disney umbrella. Do you talk about Bruno? Um, not a great deal. <laughs> I do have Disney plus, okay. and, but I, 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 uh, I don't have kids. So we're not, we're not as much in that world. And, Okay, that's and that's also why you haven't aged as well. We left out that part of it, not having kids. That's the key. You, know, you might be onto something. <laughs> uh, best piece of advice you've ever uh, received in your career was what? Boy, there's a lot of things. I, I think that the best piece of advice is what I try to pass along is is to don't fear the unknown, embrace the possibilities, don't fear the obstacles, and when you get an opportunity. Listen to your gut, tune out the static, the external stuff, even people who mean well for you and think they know you and love you. You're still the best judge for yourself, but you get there by knowing yourself well and, and having the peace of mind to tune out the static and trusting your inner voice and your gut and then approaching things with confidence, but humility, which is not always easy. 
God, that was like six pieces of advice in one. That's really good. That's right. I like to do this. Yeah. You, you definitely hit on something I like to do. I like to <laughs> like to take a lot. I've had a lot of good mentors, man, and people who told me stuff. And I think, you know, listening more than you talk when you're new at something is really important. Again, not easy for a lot of us, me included, to do. But you don't know what you don't know. So listen more than you talk when you're entering into something new or starting out in a new venture because others around you have a lot to teach you. Last one for you. Do you have anything left on your college football bucket list? Sure. Um, I don't even call it a bucket list, but there's things I haven't done, including uh, Army Navy. Mm-hmm. And Army Navy it was when I, and we, we never got a chance to go to it. Now it's the same day as the Heisman. And it was in New York or, you know, across the river in Jersey. So I thought, ah, do I do it? Could I get over there for a quarter and get back? If I did that, would I compromise the prep for the Heisman? And I just decided the professional thing to do was not to go. But someday, somewhere, I, I want to see an, an Army-Navy game and get the full experience of that because I think it's, uh, it's one of the great three hours in sports every year. That's the intensity right there. That's it all comes back to that. The intensity and power, the emotion, just what it means, man. You just, you know, championship events are great to call because they mean so much and the winners and the losers show you how much it means to them. That's army Navy. Every player, every play. Chris, really, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything you got going on, man. Hey, appreciate the talking to you. We'll do it again and uh, keep up the great work with, uh, with the content and congratulations on the growth. What's my destiny mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates for us. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring it out, we're talking most disappointing season. Little little story here. <laughs> I, uh, I made the mistake of watching the Wisconsin-Indiana game the other night. And um, I, I say mistake because that did not turn out so well for my Hoosiers, which is what I've come to expect against Wisconsin. I think they've won like 23 of the last 26 or something. Wait, you mean you were watching a basketball game, not re-watching a Wisconsin football game, right? <laughs> Just making sure, because that would be mean. Okay. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be 100% honest here. I have not re-watched an Indiana football game since I covered the team, probably. I've watched, re-watched some clips here and there, but <laughs> Can't say I've rewatched a full game since I covered the team exclusively when I was on the student newspaper back in the day. That's good for your mental health, I'd say. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, but I was watching a live college men's college basketball game <laughs> yesterday. Uh, it was yeah Tuesday night, and uh, another blown lead against Wisconsin. Another reminder that Indiana basketball is not allowed to have nice things in my lifetime. Just I come to expect that. Mm-hmm. Nine o'clock tip. I don't know why it always is against Wisconsin, but I stayed up until about 11.30 to watch it. Um, and that was when I was waking up at 6.15. So not the best idea. Couldn't fall asleep for a bit. Sometimes like after you watch a game and it's a game that you're actually invested in, you're not just kind of like half asleep for, you know, it's not that adrenaline is going, but it's a little bit tougher to kind of calm down and get in that right state of mind to, to be able to flip that switch into sleep mode. And um, I I just instantly regretted staying up because of the loss. But I started thinking about how much frustration Indiana basketball has caused me over the years. (laughs) It's bad Um, because, I mean, it's basically one of they've had two rewarding seasons in the 15 years that I've been a fan. And 
one of them I couldn't appreciate because I was covering the team. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's cool, like you're there and you get to experience it, but it just, it doesn't quite hit in the same way. I'm not in the student section, you know, cheering on the team and, and getting to, to experience it in that, in that manner. So the other one was 2015, 2016, when they beat Kentucky in the second round, they got to the Sweet 16. Um, that was the last time that they were in the NCAA tournament. It's been six years. Would have made it in 2020, but they barely would have made it and it got canceled anyway, so it just saved me the pain of watching them lose in the first round. For me, the single most disappointing sports season of my lifetime, 2012-2013 Indiana basketball. Huh, okay. Preseason number one in the country, Sports Illustrated cover, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. Got a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, I'm thinking at the very least, I'm about to watch my team in a Final Four for the first time since I became a fan. And there's something to be said about that, just getting to that Final Four mark and what that kind of means for you. And just getting essentially you know, three weeks of excitement about your team that you can win a national championship. I, I, I just thought that team was so loaded. I mean, Old Depot, Cody Zeller, mm -hmm. Yogi Ferrell, Christian Wofford, Jordan Holes. Team was stacked, it was freaking stacked. Oladipo took that leap. Zeller made the surprising decision to come back to school. Holes, Watford were seniors who had started the previous three seasons. So like, I just felt like it was time. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, this is it. I'm gonna see a national championship. IU won the Big Ten that year, feeling really good going into the NCAA tournament. Every game for me that year was such appointment viewing, and I had moved out to Nebraska in the middle of that, in the like pretty, yeah, like right smack dab in the middle of that season. So it's this thing that I'm just kind of living and dying by as I'm living by myself out there, and I know nobody, so I don't have a social life yet. So <laughs> it's just, hey, if it's on at eight o'clock on Big Ten Network, I, your boy's watching all two hours, I'm gonna be locked in. Even if I got you know the, the offices at, at the newsroom or something like that, I'm making sure that's on the TV right above me, mm -hmm. the whole deal. And so NCAA tournament comes, first win, blowout, blowout in the first round, second round, barely squeaked by Temple, but get to the second weekend, Syracuse. I'm thinking, all right, if there is ever a time to play Syracuse with that freaking zone, <laughs> freaking Jim Beheim zone, it's when you got a long break, right? That, that would be, in theory, a great time to play a team that has a unique style. Like playing Service Academy in yep. football, right? You know, Ask just, Mizzou, it's easy. Would you, be, would you play that after a break? Exactly, totally easy. Mizzou won that game. This has not been the best Mizzou podcast. I hope, I really <laughs> hope. Mizzou fans, don't give us a one-star review. We just had Harrison Mewes on two weeks ago, all right? We're gonna give you plenty of love. We'll, we'll try and get Eli Drinkwitz on real soon here. Just, your time will come. All right, so I'm going into that game. And I'm, th I'm really confident. No worries, none whatsoever. Gonna probably win the regional final four in sight. I think Syracuse is like, I don't know, like a five seed or something, whatever. Because they're never, that's the thing, those Syracuse teams are never like a one, two, three seed. It's always like, they barely won the game before. You're like, ooh, they knocked off like Michigan State or whoever the week before. Yeah. You know, thank God we got Syracuse and not the team they beat. And then buddy, the Syracuse happened. 50 freaking points. <laughs> Never had a chance. Scored 22 points in the first half. How do you get a week to prepare for that team and score 22 points in the first half? I, I, it was deflating on so many different levels because that window, as we've talked about, that title window, it was mm -hmm. slammed shut right in my face. Right in my face. I think my nose got caught in it. It hurt that badly. One time I got my, my finger stuck in a door freshman year of college. It was one of those big heavy doors and I like, 
I think I had like a broken finger. It was very, it was, the color was not right for a very long time. I had it in a splint, but whatever. Didn't ever get x-rays, no oh, big no. deal. Um, this guy was probable for six straight weeks. He was just yeah. ready to go, man. Just on the kegs, not, not complaining, not seeking medical attention, just a gamer. I did sit out the flag football season, the rest of it though, just because I thought I was hurting my team by being out there. Couldn't really catch a whole lot of hey, big, big team guy, there you go. Transition to player coach. I was better from the sideline than I was on the field. Go figure. The tree runs. Um, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's like six people who are going to get that reference and maybe not even that many. Um, that's okay. But anyways, title window is slam shut and four or five starters are going to be gone. And I realized in that moment, and this is a, this is a crap thing to realize about your team that you've just spent so much time invested into. And so many people I bet will relate to this thought. I realized that if Tom Crean, who isn't exactly the world's most popular guy right now, <laughs> uh, I realized that he, if he came up with that poor of a game plan and was so horrific with making adjustments with that team, there was no way that he was ever going to win six consecutive NCAA tournament games against teams that have players and coaches who actually know what the heck they're doing. All of that just kind of washed over me that night. And I remember watching that game with my family because they had made the trip out to Nebraska to see me. And I watched in their hotel room and then I had to go into the newspaper, uh, the newsroom after the game to edit the sports section. I don't think I said a word that night, man. It was <laughs> terrible. And it was different because, you know, in my life with the teams that I've cared about, there have been so few instances in which I actually thought a championship was on the table. 2008 Cubs, also very much part of that, but maybe it's a little bit different to experience getting swept in a series instead of entering a night or a game thinking your team can win a national title. You can win at you, all your, your hopes and dreams are right in front of you only to realize that's not happening for a very long time in just two hours and to all of a sudden get hit with that. It just, it sucked. Maybe calling those like disappointing seasons aren't entirely fair for me to say because they were regular season champs, but it's mm -hmm. still all about the playoffs. I mean, um, so, well, here's the thing. If you could only relive that season from here on out, I feel like you'd probably take that. <laughs> no, that was torture, man. That was torture. You're telling and me tomorrow, you know what I'm saying, Cody Zeller and Victor Oladipo walk through the door to Indiana and you get to laugh at the Michigan fans and the Wisconsin fans and beat them all over again, knowing that you're destined for heartbreak. You would rather be here where Indiana is right now. Um. Okay, and, and the ending... Let's so that I, I get the same ending in that scenario, you right? Get Tom Green in the NCAA tournament. It's just you I, know it's gonna end somehow. Or I get the unknown. The unknown of where you're at right now. I think I I think I knowing what I know, I would take the unknown. Oh really boy, would. that's rough. I, I, Dude, Tom Crane's six and twenty right now. All oh, right. Oh, that's true. That is a like six and twenty is a year four coach, or is it year four? Year five? I don't remember. What and it with is, each game Anthony Edwards plays in the NBA, it just looks a little funnier. Dude, bad look. Bad, <laughs> bad look. Crane's going to continue to brag about him for the next decade because that's what he does. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's got to. No, you don't have to ask Tom Crane if he coached Dwayne Wade and Victor Oladipo. He'll tell you in the first ten seconds of meeting you. Oh you yes, know, trust me. Um, anyway, that's enough Tom Crean shade for one podcast. Will, most disappointing season of your lifetime. Can I guess? Can I guess? Oh, I bet you won't get it. What is it? I was going to say 2017 Saints. Oh, no, no, no. That 2018 was the most disappointing Saints team. Um, well, 27, uh, I guess it's, it's in the playoffs in 2018, but it was the 2017 regular season 
with, of course, the very, uh, we'll call it infamous missed call with the Rams. Oh yeah, no, so 17 was the uh, the Minneapolis miracle. 18 was the NFC no right. call. Yeah, buddy, we got enough. 19 was another walk off against My the Vikings. That was, <laughs> and then we can go back farther than that. That's the thing, that was the only Saints loss that truly hurt me because I was so numb until, like exactly what you were talking about. 2018, I felt like, you know, we had like Choppa style, like the offense was like moving. Talking about that with my buddy at the gym today, it's like when they when they had Taysom Hill like working as a functional part of the offense, that was like one of the best offenses in NFL history because they would get him in the red zone. But I will actually go a different direction. 2008 LSU was easily the most heartbreaking team I've ever rooted for, and I'll tell you why. We have a year after they won it all. Yes. I'll tell you. Wow. So we haven't gotten into the whole, like, how did you become a serious college football fan? We'll probably do that on another podcast, but here's all you need to know. I moved to Hoover, Alabama, where I went to Hoover High School in the summer before this year. And my way that I made friends was through college football. Now, I thought this was a good idea because LSU was coming off a national title. Alabama was coming off of that one bad year with Saban. And I really thought to myself, you know, I'm just going to be the LSU guy. I'm going to talk a bunch of mess. I'm going to be myself or whatever. Buddy, did Alabama go undefeated until the SEC championship game, and LSU struggled in the funniest ways ever. They broke the SEC record for pick sixes that season. And the way this season started, I remember this, I looked it up, but I remember it perfectly. So they started off like ranking in the top 10. They lost a bunch of people, but whatever. They played Appalachian State, who still had um, the dude who played with the Panthers, that was like their quarterback that had won their like Heisman twice in a row, and just skunked Appalachian State. That was back when they had just upset Michigan. I was like, okay, cool, okay, that's good. Then they beat like a 10 ranked Auburn at Auburn. Now again, didn't know that this was going to be Tommy Tuberville's last year. So that seemed like a great win, right? Beat Mississippi State, whatever, you know, typical, typical Dan Mullen. Then <laughs> we go to Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. I will forever remember where I was the day that Tim Tebow hung 51. Okay, national championship defense. I remember sitting there and being like, this isn't real. I feel like uh, Lee threw a pick six in that game. There was like, that That started the whole four years of Lee and Jefferson. But people will forget, uh, other than LSU sickos like me, we had Andrew Hatch, who's a mobile quarterback from Harvard. A mobile quarterback from Harvard. And we really tried this dude, because we had had, you know what I'm saying? like. That was when we were supposed to have Ryan Paralu, but he got kicked off the team for weed. Mm -hmm. So that is yep. like a big time sliding doors team where it's like all these guys left, obviously, but Pelini left. But anyway, so Florida hangs 50 on him. Uh, you know, they, they beat South Carolina in the ref game, the, the game where the ref like blocks the guy and they barely get out of there. So it's like, okay, we're going to figure it out next week. <laughs> Frat Stafford, Georgia, 52 points. <laughs> I was like, Oh God! Like, what was, it, the, what was the highest LSU got that year? Oh, they were four when they played Florida. Yeah, yeah. So, and like, mind you, I was a young lad. I didn't really understand college football. I was still thinking like we'll be fine or whatever. And so, I didn't have. I still had the the glimmer in my eye. I really thought that this team like could turn it around. Uh, then we played Alabama, who was then number one. Uh, into I actually went to this game, and LSU lost in overtime. <laughs> <laughs> this season, as I remember it, is even worse. Uh, they almost lost to Troy, which even now seems ridiculous. They went on to later lose to Troy, but not the same Troy team. And then pretty much just got skunked, uh, lost to Ole Miss, then had like a one-point loss to Arkansas. And yeah, it was just a horrible season, man. I just truly like, based on when 2020 went bad, 
I pretty much knew it from the Mississippi State game. When 2021 went bad, I knew it yeah. from the UCLA game. UCLA game. This yeah. was a month of football where LSU was in the top five, and they beat a top 10 Auburn team, and they had 51 points. <laughs> And then 52 two weeks later. It was horrible, bro. I was sitting at the lunch table getting cooked, bro, for two, three months about how bad this team was. Yeah, and it's it's always about where you're at in life and how much trash you talk. Oh, yes. That's that's such a big part of it. And, you know, I I pushed back on that, that thought initially because... In hindsight, we can look at some of these seasons, these disappointing seasons, and say, well, you experienced X amount of success right before that. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, does having this success afterwards make that not quite as painful to look back on? And the answer is kind of like, no, because you still remember how you feel in those moments. And you still remember watching your team come up woefully short in some of these instances, like 2017 Cubs. All right, so just one first World Series in 108 years, man. Like I said many times after, I will never ask for anything else in my sports life again and because I know nothing can top it. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, when you see your team reach that peak, everything about that kind of afterwards and after you win a title, when you come up short and you don't live up to this dynasty hype or whatever, it, it kind of hits in a different sort of way. And mm-hmm. there, for whatever reason, when you when you are, are sitting there in that moment, you can't even appreciate the good moments and, and for what they are. And more times than not, there are plenty right after you win a championship, but it's still, all right, you better win. And if you don't, it's gonna hit you and all of a sudden you're kind of back to where you were and it's square one and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm reminded of how much losing sucks. This oh yeah, like if you're a Cubs fan, like pre 20, like when they really started getting the core together, let's like, call it like 2014-ish, 2013, like, cause they brought all those guys together. They all kind of came up together. It's like, you're a loser. Nobody can say anything to you. You're used to being let down and everything. But No expectations. Right, not, not right. until 20, 2015 was the first time where you're like, ah, maybe they could be kind of frisky, and then they figured it out later in the year. But when you're when you're in that rise, mm-hmm. no expectations whatsoever. You're gonna get kicked in the teeth. You have come to accept that, and there's there's peace with that. Right, you're actually you're making a great point here because I started off thinking like, oh yeah, the bad seasons are the worst seasons. No, no, the worst seasons are the seasons where you think your team should be good and they just fall on their face. No doubt. No doubt, and uh, this was we did we did that podcast um, for debates down south. Like that would have been almost two years ago. About mm-hmm. uh, most disappointing SEC teams. Go back and, and listen to that. Dig into the archives if you're looking for something to listen to during the off season, something like that. But wanted to ask the Facebook group about this. Know a lot of people have very different perspectives. Didn't want to make this strictly an SEC conversation. It can be, but just sports in general and feeling that disappointing season. So I asked the questions, why did that season fall short of expectations? How did you handle it? And what was the low point? Of course, any, it might mean too much stories. Maybe you broke a TV, you ruined a relationship. That is always fair game for this discussion. Um, Drew Page, sorry, man, we talked a lot of Cubs already, so I feel bad. (laughs) Um, great, great suggestions there, um, though, as well. And he talked about Kentucky winning nine games in basketball last year. 2020 is a little bit. Just throw it on the rug. Forget it. Move on. Um, easier said than done. 
Uh, let's go to this from uh, from Matthew Sadro. Matthew says, I'm pretty young, so I don't remember LSU much when, when they were bad. A lot of LSU talk so far. Um, <laughs> but recently, the 2015 season was such a big heartbreaker. I was a freshman at LSU. We started off 7-0. Leonard was leading the Heisman race, and we were rolling into Tuscaloosa to play one of the Bama teams that lost to Ole Miss earlier in the year. All my friends went to Tuscaloosa for the game and packed 30 people into a four-person dorm room. Oh, college. Uh, great vibes until the game started. We proceeded to get killed three weeks in a row by Bama, Arkansas, and Ole Miss, and it totally sucked all the life out of the season. To be fair, getting nine wins out of Brandon Harris was a minor miracle. God bless Les Miles for his consistency. I miss it sometimes. Um, yes, 2015 LSU, great example. Expectations couldn't be higher. You, at that point, have now gone eight years without winning a national championship. Obviously, you had been there more recently, but hadn't been there in the playoff era. That team didn't even make a New Year's Six Bowl, which is unbelievable to fathom, given the build-up to that Bama game with, with Fournette against Henry and what we were talking about. And, buddy, some lives were changed that day. We'll just say that. I'll leave it at that. They, uh, they beat Pat Mahomes in the Texas Bowl is what they did. Uh, Who could forget? That. Yeah, the Les Miles had a real way of sucking you in in the early season, disappointing you, riding out high on that bowl game. That Les Miles beat the teeth out of a good team bowl game where you're like, okay, we got it next year. It was about 10 years of an abusive cycle for just that specific thing. Very much. Uh, let's, let's just say there were some people who were devastated to not see Leonard Fournette win the Heisman Trophy that year. Yep. A lot of big time investments were made. Um, anyways, not me personally, but you know, just say. Clayton Tyler Vell says, 2017-18 uh, Georgia football season, losing to Bama and the Natty. Yeah. Totally understand. He says, I called out of work for two days. I didn't leave my room for two days. I didn't speak for two days. It was a bad two days. I love that little sonnet you just put in there. It was like Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> I didn't leave my room. I didn't speak. It was a bad two days. I love that. I, I didn't count the syllables. Does that qualify as a haiku? Oh, don't ask me. No. I can't count. Come on. <laughs> and if there's ever, and, and it's so it's so tough because you're conflicted, and there's a difference between most disappointing night versus most disappointing season. And maybe I probably did a really bad job of explaining that because. In a nutshell, like you were saying before, wouldn't you run that season back if you were just told, hey, you're gonna get another chance to, to experience a, a ride to a national championship. You're gonna go on the road, you're gonna beat Notre Dame, you're gonna fill the stadium with Georgia fans. It's gonna be all red and black there. You're gonna win against Auburn in a rematch in the SEC championship. You're gonna beat Oklahoma in this unbelievable fashion. Baker Mayfield's gonna walk off without having won a national championship. And oh, by the way, this is gonna happen. And we remember the bad, way more than the good that's the way we're all wired you just nailed is. that point man because yeah that season is worse than like you could you know you have the SEC championship you have a playoff win that season is worse than like you know what i'm saying like the last rick season where it's like oh we suck like yep yeah i mean and this is a lot easier for me to say and we we talked about this with georgia getting to a national championship this year but it is kind of different to at least get to the national championship, a place that you hadn't been since the Herschel Walker era. Mm -hmm. It's not like you lost in the semifinal again or something like that, which would have been a repeat of the 2012 SEC championship. It's, it's not quite to the same degree. Like, I don't know. I, I think that's, 
But that, again, I, I'm speaking not as a fan, but more as an outsider with a, a different view of it. So yes, no complaints whatsoever. That is definitely disappointing. Um, let's go to this one from Dave Kozar. Dave says, big Seahawks fan, a low point in relation to my to expectations was this season. Handled it by hate listening to my favorite Seahawks podcast. Low point was losing to Nick Foles and Connors Bears on that ridiculous <laughs> two-point conversion. Quite possibly, quite possibly the most meaningless Bears win in a long time. I mean, no impact whatsoever. None. I, I remember Bears fans going into that game just thinking like, definitely would be beneficial to lose right now. This is this is when you need to start losing. Need that high draft pick. And instead won a game that they had no business winning whatsoever. And some people will push back on that and say, well, you know, uh, we weren't talking about the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl or something like that, but there, there are always different dynamics at play here, and there's a very specific window, especially if you feel like a franchise quarterback like Russell Wilson could be on his way out, and if that factors into it, Pete Carroll, who, who knows how many years he's going to be coaching, and, and it's all about that window. I mean, that, that feels so important with as it relates to disappointment with a lot of this, so um, totally think that's legit, Dave. Seahawks fans... Don't hear a lot of them on this podcast, but feel your pain, and I apologize for nothing. Cotner, did you ever go Macklemore haircut? Um, I've been accused of that. So that's as close as we get. There's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do the full, like, you know, I, I don't blend it right here. I, I get it. Far I get, from I get, it now. I yeah, actually, I'm not yeah. far. I'm not that far from it. I'll be honest. I get, I get it. I get the line up here in there, mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't have it at the same sort of length. Uh, on on the top uh, to to be full Macklemore, but you know it is what it is. Oh well, there are worse things to be called. I think. Yeah, I've been called that multiple times though. That's fair. <laughs> uh, let's go. Um, oh gosh, we got some Florida and Georgia ones here. We got some long ones. Oh, that okay. Florida one is immense. Uh, yeah, let's. I'll try and. I'll try and uh, sum this up a little bit. Caleb Tillman says, I will say as a Georgia fan, 2010 season was awful, going six and seven, losing to most of our rivals, except a dominant win over Tennessee, getting beat by a bad UCF team in the bowl game. Come to think of it, it was just like the 2021 Florida season. Oh, Caleb. wow. Yes, it was. Wow, did not connect those dots. I couldn't bring myself to keep up with any off-season news, wear any Georgia gear or anything like that. Not because I wasn't still a fan, it just made me incredibly sad to think about Georgia football at that time. Um, 2011 was the first time in years that I went a whole season without attending a single game. But after we did okay in 2011, I was able to get excited from, for football again, just in time for Alabama to rip out my heart in 2012. I do that. Sometimes, man, those, those years, they just weigh on you. And eventually you just say, oh, would my life be better without this? <laughs> there are moments, there are. And if you've never experienced that, more power to you. 2016, if, they had, if the Cubs had lost in game seven, if they had come back from that stupid rain delay and if the Indians had hit a walk-off home run, I seriously would have probably been like, I need at least a year to be away from sports. Mm -hmm. Not in this job, because of course, you know, but I just need a, a, a year to, to not be a fan. It just hurts too much and it's just not worth it. And if that's all you know, 
and sometimes it depends on how many teams that you, you've got going. And sometimes that's why it's nice every once in a while to hop on a bandwagon. Look, I'm a bandwagon Blackhawks fans. When, the, when they're in the playoffs, it was, it was great. My dad loved the Blackhawks as well. So when they would really get rolling, like playoff hockey is so much fun. And it's a very fun bandwagon to be a part of. And it's fun also because you don't have that invested interest. And that's why people kind of hate on it. But at the same time, it's kind of nice to cleanse a little bit. Will, you're on a juice cleanse right now. You know what I'm talking about. I'm trying, man. I'm dying over here. <laughs> the amount of dates I just remembered is shocking for how out of it my brain is. <laughs> but sometimes you just have those moments and you say, what am I doing here? Should I do something else? Should I pick up a new hobby? Hopefully nobody listening to this podcast has experienced anything like that in recent memory and you've come back better for it. But man, if those moments aren't tough to get to, I feel you, Caleb, that's brutal. Will, have you ever taken a pause on being a fan of a specific team? Oh, I mean, I'm a Saints fan. <laughs> this, the Saints are like a drug. Like you get done with this easy, you're like, why do I do this to myself? I, well, I, don't, I don't get it. And then you gotta think back, you always talked about like times I've had with my friends and my mom going to games and everything. It's like, all right, sign me up another year for this crap. <laughs> it's just. What's, what's the, the, the scene in, uh, in Superbad where um, Evan's character, yeah, Evan's, yeah, Evan's the skinny one, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. Michael Sarah. Yeah. He's playing, he's playing that video game and he's just sitting there and he loses, and he's like, why, why do I even, what, what, what's the point? Can't, can't even win, and he just basically throws his controllers. <laughs> like walks away from it. Sometimes I envy that. Yes, that's a good point. Sometimes that's just how it feels. Um, let's go to this. Scott Strauss, this one's a bit, it's a bit lengthy, a bit lengthy here. Um, we'll try and sum this up. I became a Florida fan when I started there as a student there in 2012. Um, 23, 2013 rather, would be the obvious answer with the loss to Georgia Southern, but this past season was actually the most disappointing I've had as a fan. I believed Mullen was the guy, really did, and had a lot of faith in the 2021 team coming into the season. Um, talk about Emory Jones, two-point loss to Bama, um, being fully convinced that they would get to Atlanta. Uh, I knew things had fallen off the rails during the Vandy game. Ironically enough, that was a 42 to nothing Florida win. Very, very fair thing to say with the way that Vandy kind of marched up and down the field in the first half. Team look, just looked bad. Midway through the year, we were getting worse as the rest of the ICC was getting better. Proceeded to go on a five-game losing streak. He counts Samford as a loss. This guy is the coolest, one of the coolest Florida fans. The way he's breaking this down is very, like, <laughs> self-reflective. Yeah. It's like about, I'm good. I'm glad that we read all this. Yeah. Having to sit in uh, TIA Bank Stadium and witness Georgia pummel us into the ground live was the low point. It was too far gone at that point, and the writing was on the wall for Mullen and company. Like I said, man, when you know that that person in charge ain't going to do it, low, real low. Like, let's move on from this as soon as possible low. Like my buddies who don't watch this situation closely aren't gonna get it and I'm gonna feel like crap as long as that person's employed kind of low. Buddy, do I hear that? <laughs> Les Miles hit that, what, I mean, 2015 would have, against Bama probably was that moment for you, right? Yep, I was thinking about Coach O. Like so many people love Coach O. We're just like, oh, like, why did you guys fire him? You just wanted that. It's like, you don't see behind the curtain. That's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, don't tell me about Kyle Trask. That's gone. It's not coming yep. back. 100%. Uh, let's, do, let's do a couple more here. Uh, 
Tyler Johnson. Tyler Johnson says 2016 Vols football beat Georgia and Florida, but didn't win the East. Couldn't figure it out against South Carolina and Vandy. Also, App State took us to overtime. The most inconsistent season I have ever seen in my life. Throttled Nebraska in the 90s are never coming back to bowl. Throttled um, Nebraska in the 90s oh, are never wait. coming back bowl. I love that. Yes. That's really funny. Yes. I, I, I um, misspoke there. Vols fans, y'all know disappointment very, very well. That opener against App State where it's supposed to be a top 10 team and you realize very early on, oh boy, uh, this this team doesn't have that upside, but of course the, the two wins that they have, the comeback win against Florida and then of course Dobbs nail boot, it makes you think maybe Team Destiny, all that, and then it just goes up in smoke. Didn't even get to uh, didn't even get to a New Year's Six Bowl that year because they went mm-hmm. they they played uh, they played Northwestern, right? Yeah, wasn't that? Nope. Didn't they play that Northwestern? Was, that, well, the year before well, they the played Northwestern, year. and they played That's Nebraska right. that year. I actually have a special connection. I love the, that Tennessee team. That was the first. That was my my baby hater team, where I was like, I don't believe in this team for no particular reason. I just want to be a hater. And yeah, no, you're right. Like they had. Derek Barnett, they had like all they had Alvin Kamara. They had so many dudes that were just electric. And yeah, like you said, they beat Florida and Georgia. And I believe they ended a streak both times. And they lost to like Vandy and like the most random teams. It was like this is that was the strangest, other than Mississippi State this year, the second strangest SEC st- season I've ever witnessed live. Like every every week was appointment viewing, starting with Appalachian State. It's uh the roller coaster that'll take so many years off your life. Mm-hmm. I would love. I want to see the final stats go up. I, I hope that you know, if and when my time comes to reach the pearly gates, that there are there are some some analytics waiting for me. <laughs> There's some That's, some pearly gates, some heaven points, PFF grade, smooth 80, 86 for Cotter. He's fast late, fast pass through the pearly gates. Too many Wisconsin Indiana basketball games. Have, uh, yeah, definitely multiple weeks off my life. Uh, let's end with these with these two. Laura Doyle says season six of Lost was one of the greatest disappointments <laughs> in my life. Love throwing that in there. Please throw more stuff like that in there. Also, 2015-2016 USC hoops 25 and nine left out of the NCAA tournament. Egregious. But you went to the Final Four next year. It's not too bad. Mm-hmm. But still disappointing in that moment. Again, we don't want to. We don't want to lessen people's pain. Believe it. Mm-hmm. Daniel Daniel Priest says, Connor, since there is no pain like second place, is it better to have your team go ten and two and win a great New Year's Six Bowl, leaving you smiling with momentum, or lose in the playoffs? That's a great question. Awesome question, Daniel. And I think context is everything. If you're a team that wasn't expected to be there and you're 10 and two, different story. I think, um, for example, uh, early Florida is probably a good example. Early Florida with Mullen is a good example of that, where, all right, you realize that you weren't winning a national championship middle of the season. You got some nice quality wins. Eh, 20, I guess 2018 was a little bit of a roller coaster with the Mizzou game and all that stuff as well, but uh, the Kentucky loss, of course. But you know, you still hold on to this belief of it can get better. And if you lose in the playoffs, there's just no guarantee you're getting back. Now it's different, of course, if you're a team like Alabama, Ohio State, you're there every year and you can just kind of pencil that in, even mm-hmm. Clemson. I know Clemson had a down year, but 
I think it's just different. I feel like if you're, let's say, um, like 2015 Michigan State, would 2015 Michigan State have been better off just making a New Year's Six Bowl again and winning it as opposed to getting to the playoff and getting its teeth kicked in by Alabama? Gosh. Or 2021 Michigan? Oh, would they no, have been better? No, no, Michigan State is the perfect one too because they also super duper failed to build off of that. Like that's the thing, like any yes. logic you could have of making the playoffs should help you X, Y, and Z, recruiting, money, da, da, da. They fell off a cliff after that. Yeah, you'd almost rather take I don't know, but if you're a Michigan State fan, now you can say you have a playoff appearance, which like eight teams can say. So, yeah. But if you don't score, does it count? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, as someone who employed Brian yeah. Kelly, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, they, Notre Dame scored. Notre Dame scored. Three, yeah. Yeah, no, they, they scored, what, 17 last year against Bama? You know, um, something like that. Yeah. I, I think that's a great question, though. And I think context is important to answer that in absolute fashion. But, um, man. I would probably, I would probably, in a nutshell, I would lean playoff, get your teeth kicked in, mm -hmm. as opposed to just the 10 and two, because then it, you've at least kind of seen, all right, we, we can see how we stack up against the mm -hmm. elite. And college football is weird in that way. No other sport truly works like that. Um, so maybe that's not the, a, a, an example that kind of covers all different sports. But I think in college football, it's, it's especially important to at least see what it looks like on that big stage. Well, you also win your conference, which is really important. Um, like for a lot yeah. of teams, like Michigan, that was a big deal for them. I'll say really quick, uh, Krista Kinzinger said the exact same thing I did about 2008 yes. LSU. Love that. Like I said, I'm not a load here. That was a horrible year. That's all I got. Thank you for everybody who submitted answers to figuring it out. Uh, we have another first-time guest coming up this week. Power Five head coach, first-time Power Five head coach. In fact, should be a great interview coming up next week. Leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. Subscribe to Blue Chip Grit, our new basketball newsletter. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with figuring out your bold and brush. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.